And as you're finding your seat, I'd ask that you uh, take your copy of God's Word and turn to John chapter 19. John chapter 19 as we see the death of our King. The death of our King. Uh, if you're new with us, uh, welcome. I'm Joshua. I'm the lead pastor here at Freshwater. We're ecstatic that you're here with us. Our mission as a church is to help the people of our community and world become totally committed followers of Jesus Christ. And if you are new, there are several things that happen every single week, um, week in and week out. And one of those is that we spend a significant portion of our time looking at the Bible. So um, uh, with that having been said, if you don't have a Bible in your lap, maybe you forgot to bring one with you, um, there are a few Bibles probably rather close to you in the backs of the chairs, and we're going to be on page just like 904, 905, 906, something like that. I've lost track now, and if you can turn to that and find big number 19, you'll be able to follow along um, as we eventually get into uh, the scriptures. Believe it or not, we are this morning going to give a big picture, quick kind of flyover, 30,000 foot view rendering of the entire 19th chapter. So um, when we come back next week, we'll be moving right into chapter 20. This really is narrative. So in narrative, it's a little bit easier to uh, pull off bigger portions of text, a lot bigger portions than what we covered when we were originally going through the gospel of John in those opening chapters. But as you're turning, I I want you to think about the last time that you were on an airplane, like a, a commercial airplane, a commercial flight. Maybe you haven't flown yet, and if you haven't, you know, it's probably pretty easy to, to use your imagination, but imagine that you board the plane, you look down the little aisle or corridor or whatever it's called, and if your seat's already been assigned to you on your ticket, you're looking for the seat that's been assigned to you, and if not, you're looking for um, what you think is going to be the best seat for your flight. If everything goes well, once everybody is seated and everybody's buckled in, the plane begins to slowly creep toward the runway to take off. And what happens before the plane can take off? The flight attendants get up and they begin to tell you what you need to expect if something goes wrong during the flight. Uh, And the flight attendants, every single um, flight you will ever go on, they stand before the passengers and they give this spiel. They say, well, you know, Oxygen masks are going to fall out of the ceiling, and you want to make sure you put on your oxygen mask before you help your neighbor, your child next to you. They tell you that your seat can act as a flotation device. They tell you to check and know where your closest exits are. And, and they tell you all this stuff in, in case, hopefully, if there is a major problem, if, if, if there is something that majorly goes wrong and the plane goes down, hopefully we all live through it. And every flight, commercial flight that you will ever go on, those flight attendants give that information. Because if something was to happen, I know that it's very unlikely that it would ever go wrong, but if something was to happen, you're going to need to know what to do. Now, I haven't flown a whole lot. I'm sure many of you have flown more times than I have, but I've probably flown 50 or 75 flights in my whole life. And what I've noticed is that as important as that info is, nobody is paying attention. Like, really, nobody. Like, look, there might be a couple people. Generally, the people where it's their first flight or their second flight or something like that, they're paying attention. But everybody else, they're completely checked out. They're looking at magazines. They've got their beats on already. They're staring out the window watching planes land, whatever. And they have, hear me, zero interest in anything that the flight attendants are saying. And we might be able to say that some people just don't care and that they know the chances of something happening are basically next to nothing, so they're not listening to anything that they have to say. But I think the more likely picture is that those that are listening the least 
are those that have heard it the most. And because they've flown so many times, when that spiel comes off, that five-minute spiel or whatever it is about the seatbelt and the exits and the oxygen masks, they mentally check out simply because they've already heard that story so many times before. Well, my fear is that when we discuss the crucifixion of our Christ and the murder of our Lord and Savior, my fear is that we are prone to respond in that same way. We're prone to respond by saying, Ah, you know, I've heard that story before, haven't I? I've seen a crucifix. Everybody knows that Jesus died on a cross. We all know what happened on a hill between two criminals crown of thorns, spear in the side. I mean, there are a lot of people that aren't even Christians that know the crucifixion story. You don't have to be a Christian to be aware of that. You know the story. We hear it every Easter, don't we? And what happens is that this account of the death of our king becomes so repetitive and so mundane that we kind of mentally check out. We've just decided that we've already got it all figured out. Do you agree that that's at least possible? I know it wouldn't happen to you. It might happen to your neighbor, right? Because you're, yeah, there you go. And what happens in this account and the death of our king is that it becomes so repetitive sometimes when we listen to it, we just mentally check out. So I want us to remember this morning is that we are not just about to study the death of a guy who claimed to be God. We are about to look at the most significant death that has ever occurred. There has never been anyone that has died as significant of a death as Jesus died. So John the Apostle, the one who is writing this account, he understands how important this death is. If you remember, we're in the Gospel of John. Uh, The John that wrote this book was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. As a matter of fact, we see him called today the disciple whom Jesus loved. And this title is not to say that Jesus didn't love other disciples. That's not what it means at all. It's simply to emphasize that Jesus was closer with some of his apostles and some of his disciples than he was with others. And I know that that sometimes makes us nervous. We want to think of Jesus as not having cliques or anything like that. But the reality is that Jesus had 12 apostles, 12 of his closest buddies. And even in that group of 12, three of them were especially significant to him. Those three being Peter, James, and John. And then even of those three, one of them really seems to rise to the surface. That one being John, who wrote the gospel that we've been reading and studying over the last year and a half. But as John records the death of Jesus Christ, it's my belief that his desire is that everyone that reads this would see that this was not an ordinary death. This was not just another person that passes away. This was a special death. This was a significant death. This was the death of the most important person ever placed his feet on the ground. This was the death of our King. This was the death of our Lord, our Savior. So in chapter 19, we're going to see how this is not an account that is worthy of us placing our nose in the newspaper are staring out the window as planes are landing or taking off all around us, this is the most important death that has ever occurred. So I'm going to do something a little bit different this week. We're not going to read the entire 19th chapter. Instead, I'm going to tell the narrative that takes place, and we'll pick some of the text to read. This week in your life groups, you are, however, going to read the entire 19th chapter, so you can look forward to that. But what we're seeing this morning are three ways that Jesus' death was different than any other death. Three ways, very simple, that Jesus' death was different than any other death. I'll give you the first way in just a second, but let me just remind you, we're in the trial of Jesus. I mean, we're we're minutes, really, before Jesus dies. Pilate is, it seems like, doing his best to let Jesus go without crucifying him. Jesus, last week we saw, reminded Pilate that Jesus leads a better kingdom than the kingdom that Pilate leads. And although I really don't think that Pilate desired to crucify Christ, the Jewish 
uh, leadership, the religious leaders in the community keep demanding that it happen. Chapter 19 opens with Jesus being flogged, meaning he would have been beaten. This initial beating was probably a light beating compared to the one that would later come. The soldiers place a crown of thorns on his head. They mock him. Pilate presents Jesus once again to the crowds just as a means of showing how powerless and harmless this guy seems to be. But the crowds, what do they keep shouting? They're shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucifying him. They're demanding that Jesus die. That's what they're doing. Now look at verse 12. We're going to read verses 12, 13, 14, 15, and and maybe 16 if we get to it. And in that scripture, we're going to see the first way that Jesus' death was different than any other death. If you're doing the fill-in thing, here's your first blank. In Jesus' death, Jesus died an undeserved death. It was an undeserved death. Look at verse 12. It says, From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. Let's pause there. So Jesus died an undeserved death. Where do we see that in the text? Well, there's going to be a lot of data this morning, a lot more than we normally have, but there's just a lot to kind of dive into and and kind of get our hands on. Notice how this is laid out, and this is, I think, intentional. Verse 12, Pilate, who is this pagan king, still wants to release Jesus. The religious leadership demands that he kill Christ, so this just keeps going on and on and on. But in verse 14, is a detail that's hard for us to, to notice, but the original audience would have caught it immediately. Verse 14, look again, it says, Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. Let's pause and let's, let's think about what exactly is the Passover. Let's review that. Well, remember way back in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, God's people are in slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. God calls Moses, he uses Moses to lead the people out of Egypt toward the promised land, but they don't get out of there without God pouring out a whole bunch of absolutely horrible plagues on the Egyptians. Do y'all remember that? Including God turns the Nile River into blood, he fills the land with flies and frogs and gnats and all the livestock dies and you can read the plagues in Exodus as absolutely horrible things are happening. But the last one is what? God sends a death angel and that angel goes into every home in Egypt in the middle of the night and kills every firstborn son. That's the tenth and final plague. And God told his people, the Israelites, the ones that were in slavery, he told his people that they needed to take a lamb without blemish, they needed to kill that lamb And they need to spread the blood over the doorposts of the home. And when that angel saw the blood smeared on the doorpost of that home, that angel would pass over that home and go to the next home. And this was God's way of providing for his people and keeping them from experiencing the heartache and the suffering and the loss that the Egyptians were going to experience for enslaving God's people, the Israelites. So when that morning came, you could imagine waking up in that world every home had a dead child in it. Every home had a dead child in it, yet the Israelites had been protected. The angel had passed over their home, right? Well, Jesus is now centuries after that event, and that Passover has since become a a national holiday where you've got a festival going on, and you've got special meals and parties and all this other kind of stuff, and now Jesus is being crucified. Actually, we've spent the last several months looking at events that are in that week leading up to his crucifixion. So a lot of stuff going on in a very small amount of Scripture. That's the festival that is just beginning. 
But notice how verse 14 continues. What does it say next? It says, it was about the sixth hour. So John tells us what time the crucifixion of Jesus is taking place. And we don't talk about time like this today, do we? You know, we say, well, you know, service starts at 9.30 or 11, a.m., p.m., you know, whatever. That's, that's the way that we talk about time. But that system of time was not used by these people 2,000 years ago. Rather, for them, their day began at what we would call 6 o'clock in the morning. And every hour was called the first hour, the second hour, the third hour, after that point of 6 o'clock in the morning. Does that make sense? So if it, the day begins at 6 o'clock in the morning, they say, okay, meet me at the city hall at, at the first hour. That's actually 7 o'clock in the morning. So if they said that Jesus is being crucified at the sixth hour, that means that six hours after six o'clock in the morning, John is saying this is happening about noon. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, you know, what does it matter? Why do I care what time Jesus was crucified? We know that it was on the Friday before Easter. We know that that's when it happened, right? Move on, not a big deal. But hear me, John mentions noon. This is important because during the Passover, on the Friday before the Sabbath, you know what began at noon in Jerusalem at the temple? The Passover lamb was being slaughtered. The Passover lamb was the lamb that would be killed the Friday before the Sabbath when the Passover was beginning. And it was meant kind of almost like to be, to be a, a certain, a specific and important ceremony that everybody looked forward to the week of the Passover. It reminded the people of how God had told them back in Exodus to kill a lamb and to spread the blood on the doorpost. How God had told them to find a lamb without blemish, one that was symbolically without sin. And because that lamb died, the people would live. They would be spared. They would be protected by God, wouldn't they? So catch this. John is reminding us of the same thing that he reminded us at the very beginning of the book, in chapter 1, the scripture that that Brian read earlier, that Jesus is the Lamb of God. That's what he's getting at. Now, what is the Lamb of God? Lamb of God is a title given to Jesus that emphasizes he's the perfect sacrifice for your sins. They used to kill a spotless lamb. There's a procedure to it. There's a certain way that that a Jewish rabbi will even do it to this day. They would cut its throat and they would allow the blood to run out on the altar. They used to kill something that didn't deserve to die so that they could live. You see that? And here Jesus is sinless, perfect, without moral or ethical stain or blemish. And here he is being killed as the Lamb of God so that we can live. So when John says Jesus is being killed at the sixth hour at noon, he wants us to see that at noon on that Friday, two lambs are simultaneously being slaughtered. One being the Passover lamb, and one being the lamb of God, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' death, Jesus died an undeserved death, didn't he? Now that second way Jesus' death was different than any other death, in Jesus' death, Jesus met the prophetic promises. He met the prophetic promises. Jesus' death was different than any other death and that John wants us to know that God had been promising the people Jesus' death for thousands of years. This is not something that suddenly sneaks up on God. This is something God had planned for. And you know what? I've noticed that that's something that a lot of Christians don't realize. A lot of Christians have been taught the Bible stories of you know, a lot of the stories that many of us are familiar with, we've, we, we've heard about Jonah being swallowed by a whale, David played a harp, Adam and Eve in the garden, the story of Ruth, 
Noah and the animals on the ark, whatever. But it's my experience that we haven't always been taught the thread that has been running through all of the Old Testament, that God was going to deliver his people from their sins. That all of this was leading toward this point, And that he had been promising them this for centuries. He'd been giving snapshots in his scripture regarding what this was going to look like. So when John is recording to the death of Jesus, he desperately wants you and I to see the snapshots that God has given in the Old Testament that Jesus is now fulfilling. For example, I'll give you four of them. We'll run through these. There's a lot of detail here, but I promise you this is worth it. Look at verse 23 in just a second. But at this point, they've taken Jesus to the place called the place of a skull, which is also known as Golgotha. They crucify him with two criminals, one on each side. Pilate has placed a sign above Jesus that says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He's written it in three different languages so that everybody that passes by knows exactly what it says. He does it not as a sign of respect, but just as a way to mock our Lord and Savior. And it's at that point that the soldiers begin to decide who's going to get Jesus' clothing. Now understand that crucifixions usually occurred Naked. And when I say naked, I mean butt naked. So all throughout the Roman Empire, people were crucified. They weren't just crucified on crosses, by the way. They were nailed to anything that would hold a nail. A building, a tree, a stake, a cross, whatever. And they were almost, without exception, completely stark naked. The exception seems to be, at least what I've read, seems to be in Palestine because the Jews, through such a hubbub about this, they were so offended that naked people are out hanging on crosses, so eventually the Roman Empire decided to allow people to wear a loincloth. So when you see a crucifix or something like that or a picture of Jesus hanging on the cross and he has a loincloth on, it's completely appropriate and probably is historically accurate. But when you traveled outside of Palestine, people are hanging completely naked on crosses all over the place. So the soldiers are now taking Jesus' clothing. Clothing was extremely expensive back then. And look at what it says in verses 23 and 24. It says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. That means it was expensive. People didn't wear a one-piece piece of clothing. It was patched together. That's how, that's how clothing was, generally. So it's an expensive piece of clothing. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. That last statement there is a quote from Psalm chapter 22, verse 18. John wants us to see this is happening because God told us a long time ago that they were going to gamble for his clothes. God, God anticipated that. God didn't anticipate it. God, God said it was going to happen. Now I'll go down to verse 28. Jesus, at the end of his life, hanging on the cross, says halfway through, verse 28, what does it say? He says, I thirst. Verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. This was said to fulfill Psalm 69, verse 21. God had said, they're going to give me sour wine when I thirst. Right after that, Jesus says, it is finished. He bows his head, he gives up his earthly spirit, and he dies. The soldiers are concerned with making sure Jesus is dead before the sun goes down. And what they would normally do to speed up the process of death is that they would break your legs. Because if you're hanging on a cross, imagine this, if you're hanging on a cross and you have 
stakes driven through your wrists to, to wood, to the beams, the cross members, and then you have a stake driven through your feet. As you're hanging there, your body begins to sag, your shoulder blades begin to crush your lungs, and you can't breathe. So what you're doing as you're hanging on the cross is you're pushing up on your legs. You're trying to give yourself a little bit of room so that you could breathe. So what the soldiers would do was they would break the people's legs so that they couldn't push up on their feet, which means that they can't breathe, which means they'll die quicker, which means the soldiers get to go home quicker, right? So they break their legs. But when the soldiers make it to Jesus to break his legs, they realize he's already dead because look at verse 36. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. That's a direct quote from Psalm 34, 20. Again, look at verse 37. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced, referring to how a spear was thrust into Jesus' side. That's a quote from Zechariah twelve ten. So what you have is John is recording the death of Jesus and he uses no less than four direct quotes from the Old Testament to describe Jesus' death. Why? He wants you and I to realize that Jesus was fulfilling the promises of the Old Testament. He wants, Jesus, he wants, he wants you and I to realize this was not an accident. Everything that took place was the exact way that God wanted it to occur. So... I've got a lot more to say about that, but we're going to move on to the third way. Jesus' death was different than any other death. And in Jesus' death, Jesus died an undeserved death. Secondly, Jesus' death met the prophetic promises. This is the way it had been promised in the Old Testament. Now, thirdly, in Jesus' death, Jesus gave you a reason to respond publicly. He gave you a reason to respond publicly. Let's now see how Jesus' death pushes some people to respond publicly to Christ. Look at verses 38 through 42. It says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews." Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So now Jesus has died. His body is hanging on the cross, and we see two men step up to the plate who desire to take Jesus' body down and to bury it. The two men are Joseph of Arimathea, who verse... 38 calls a disciple of Jesus. But now we see the Gospel of John come full circle because this dude named Nicodemus comes back into the picture. Now remember, back in chapter 3, which was a long time ago, last year, whenever we covered that, Nicodemus was the Pharisee that came to Jesus in the middle of the night because he was afraid that others would see him. Jesus gave him a great lesson on what it takes to be born again. If you know John 3.16, that verse comes in the midst of that discussion. But Nicodemus left that conversation, if you remember, unwilling to bow the knee and to follow Christ. Well, now he's back, and this time he's in the public eye. He's out while the sun is up. And he's now out where everybody can see him, helping Joseph of Arimathea take the body off the cross, preparing the body of Jesus with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes and placing him in a new tomb. And what we have to acknowledge is that something has changed in this dude's life. 
Between chapter 3 and chapter 19, Nicodemus is a different man. Can we say that he's been born again at this point? Can we say that he's repented and believed in a way that we would call, you know, that say that leads to salvation? I don't know that we have enough evidence to make that kind of a claim. But there is one thing that we can say. Nicodemus goes from ashamed of Jesus but still interested, so he approaches him in the cover of night in chapter 3, that scripture that we looked at last, last year sometime, to out in public in front of everyone, no longer caring if anybody sees what he's doing. So over the course of this gospel, somewhere along the lines in those middle 16 chapters, something has changed in Nicodemus' heart. And here's what I'm working toward. Some of us, I bet, are treating the death of Christ like it is some ordinary, insignificant death. And how are we doing that? By our unwillingness to simply be what we are, not only in private, but in public as well. For fear of the Jews is what is listed in this text. Joseph of Arimathea is unwilling to to, to really stick his neck out and and follow Jesus in every way, or had been for fear of the Jews. For you it might be for fear of losing friendships. For fear of people thinking you're a weirdo. For fear of not getting a promotion at work. For fear of missing out. That's a good one. For fear of whatever. You're treating Christ's death as though it's an ordinary death. You're treating Christ's death as though nothing really needs to change about your life because of the cross. So my encouragement for us all is that Jesus' death is so monumental and so earth-shaking and so important, it causes our faith to be lived out not only privately, but absolutely publicly as well. So there we have it. We've seen these three ways Jesus' death was different than any other death. What were they? Just to review, Jesus died an undeserved death, didn't he? Jesus' death met the prophetic promises of the Old Testament. And then thirdly, Jesus gave you a reason to respond publicly. All of those, I think, are important. But as I was thinking about how can I just maybe share some closing thoughts regarding some ways that this can maybe be implemented in our life, I want to just give you three closing thoughts regarding how our minds need to change about the way we think about Christ's death. I'm going to give you these three, and then then we'll be um, at least halfway done. Number one. Stop thinking casually about Jesus' death. Stop thinking casually about Jesus' death. Jesus' death is not an afterthought that is tagged on to Easter Sunday. Like, that's not it at all. It is not a footnote on the resurrection. It is a significant event. Most people would say one of the most significant events, maybe beside the resurrection, maybe the most significant event that has ever occurred, in all of humanity. So we need not think casually about Jesus' death. We need not say, yeah, Jesus died. We need to say, yeah, Jesus died. God incarnate, God in the flesh, died. Number two, stop thinking impersonally about Jesus' death. Stop thinking impersonally about Jesus' death. Don't see Jesus' death as something just that happened 2,000 years ago, although it definitely did have a, 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 a time in history when it did occur. But don't think about it as being completely unrelated to your walk with Christ. I mean, listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And by the way, he had to be sinless. He had to be that Lamb of God because we are so sinful, aren't we? That's why he had to be sinless. 1 Corinthians 15.3 For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for your sins. 
So let's stop seeing Jesus' death as something detached from our lives. This is the event that changes your life. Thirdly, stop thinking privately about Jesus' death. Stop thinking privately about Jesus' death. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus come out into the light doing what needs to be done, even in the case where maybe the people that they knew were going to persecute them for their faith and for their newfound walk with Jesus. They're willing to step out into the light and do whatever it takes to bring the body down and prepare it for burial. Listen to what Matthew chapter 10, verse 33 says. Whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. The death of Christ is not something that only happens internally in your heart. This is something that influences every way that you live in your life. I'll give one last thing and then I'll, I'll be done. If you don't know, I'm a seminary student. Uh, I've graduated once and then I re-enrolled and hopefully by this time next year I'll be just about wrapped up and I uh, will be able to, um, we'll have a, a book burning, an old-fashioned book burning where I take all my seminary books and we pile them in the middle, maybe of this room, who knows, and open the doors and we just douse with gasoline and Set her ablaze, I don't know. But in one of my more recent classes, I had a paper that was due that required a lot of reading and a lot of sources and a lot of work. So I had, I think I had about 40 books checked out at once. And you all have all checked out books before from a library. In this particular library at the seminary I go to, when you check them out, they tell you the date that they're due back. And then they also even put a little, like, sticker on the book that has the date that it's due back. So really, there's no way to get around it. But look, I'm 34 years old now. I don't have that much space left in my brain to fill it with nonsense. So I'm not devoting any of it to due dates for library books. And I'm certainly not paying any attention to the dates when books are due back. So I get the paper done. I send it in. The books are still stacked up mostly on my desk, different parts of my study, not really paying attention to them. A couple days go by, a couple more days go by, a couple more days go by. And eventually, I make it to the post office, and I mail the books in to get them back to the library in Kansas City, but not without first getting an email that says, I've got fines for my books being overdue, and that those fines have now reached $86. Did y'all hear that? That was $86. And the first thing I think is, look, you know, this is seminary. We're working for Jesus, and Jesus does not like overdue fines. That's the first thing I thought. That's obvious from the word whenever I studied the Bible. But the next thing I think is, how am I going to hide this from my wife? Because she is going to blow a top if I'm spending $86 on book fees. So I begin thinking through my head, how can I, how can I avoid this? And the first thing that I think of is, I got to find somebody that I know that works at the library. So I begin racking my my head, and I finally remember somebody that I kind of know. So I call them up, I speak nicely, politely, I explain to them my problem, how my marriage hangs in the balance of this issue, and I ask them as nicely as I can if there is any way that they love Jesus enough that they could just make this go away. So sure enough, they're listening on the other end of the line, and within you can hear the computer click a couple times, and what has happened? They've completely erased my debt, every bit of it. The point is that because I knew someone who could make it happen, that fine was completely wiped away. And when we think about the death of our king, this was no ordinary death because if we know him, this death wipes away every sin we've ever committed. Every single one. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant that it is finished. He meant that your sin, if you will follow him, is completely atoned for. And my question for you this morning is not whether or not you know the facts around the death. My question is whether or not you know the one that died. Do you know him? Can you say that you're following him? 
Can you say that you've repented and believed? That you're doing your best to abandon the cares of this world, to die to self and to follow him no matter what the situation might be. Now, some of you can say that you have and you are, and praise God for you. We're siblings in Christ, and I can't wait to spend eternity with you in, in heaven. But for those of you who haven't, the invitation is always for you to do that right now, just as you said, just to cry out to God in your heart and say, God, would you please save me? I repent of my sins. I place my faith in you and everything about my life now comes under your authority. Now, if you're interested, there are three ways that you can respond to that. Number one is in your worship guide. There's a connect card on the edge of that, and there's a bubble at the top that says, I've chosen to follow Jesus, and you can mark that bubble. You can throw that in the giving baskets that come by later, and we'll contact you about what that looks like for you to follow Christ. The second way you can respond is at the connect table during this next song. So here in a second, we're going to stand and we're going to pray, or we're going to stand and sing together. And as we sing, I stand in the foyer at the table with a big sign that says connect above it. If you want to step out and come back and talk with me, I'd love to share with you about what that looks like for you to follow Christ. The third way, of course, as well, is just simply at the back door on your way out. Um, as long as I make it back there in time, I'll be back at the back door when you walk by. If you just want to reach out and say, Josh, I've chosen to follow Jesus, there is no more important conversation that could happen this morning than that conversation. So we're going to stand and we're going to sing together in just a second. As we sing, this is also the time in the service when we give you an opportunity to worship through giving. If you're a guest with us, this is not the time when we plug you for money. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need your money. This is an opportunity for those of us that are partners and regular tenders of Freshwater to give as an act of worship to support the ministry of the church. There are four ways that you can give here at Freshwater. The most simple and the most obvious being the giving baskets as they come by. Um, The second being the giving kiosk in the foyer where you can give by debit or credit card. Uh, The third way being the giving box, which is also in the foyer. And the fourth way is at freshwaterjc.com, how many of you give. So I'll pray for us and then we will um, sing together and we'll, we'll give in response to what God has shown us in his word. Heavenly Father and Lord, I thank you, God, for what you've said in your scripture. I thank you, God, that you love us, and I thank you that we just get to follow you. Lord, you had to die. There was no other way. You had ordained that there was no other way for us to be saved. So when you were hanging on that cross, and you... And when you cried out, it is finished. Lord, you were saying that because our sin, our disobedience, our rebellion against you, which is so massive and it's just so great, it had been completely taken care of. It had been wiped away, Lord. So I thank you, God, that we get to follow you. I thank you that we we don't have to attempt to add something to the sacrifice that you've made. You didn't say, it is finished, except that they've still got to make up X percentage of the rest. No, Lord, you said it is finished. We believe you at your word, and we thank you for this. We thank you that we get to just come in faith and sing and give and be your children. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.